This show is distributed by SoundCloud. Welcome. Welcome to episode 160 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent. Jason Roberts is unavailable to be with us today because uh, due to an illness in a family. So um, best wishes to Jason. Sorry he can't be here. We have two special guest hosts, Peter Cooper and Alex Gemmell. And, um, Ooh, the English invasion. I always forget you're English. Oh, really? Well, what do you think? What do you think I am? American? Yeah, just, I guess, you know, you've moved over there. You've kind of got this slight transatlantic kind of lilt coming into the voice. You know, I just kind of... Uh, <laughs> It's an American podcast. I kind of just assume you're American, so no, you are right. You are right. I do have a little bit of a weird lilt. But a lot of a lot of Americans think I'm Australian. They they always think we're we're Australian. You change they, your T's to always... D's. And I have actually changed my T's to D's. That's a very good point. I don't say better. I say better. Better. Which is, which is weird because I don't even think Americans say better. So anyway, so I sent you guys uh, a last minute uh, list of hack and use links, and I thought, well, should I kind of go through and individually choose links, or could I just send you? the hack and use slash best because you're lazy yeah basically that was the easy route well this is what jason knows you know jason knows that that i'll always take the easy route <laughs> that's the so, easy route <laughs> oh, yeah. come on man <laughs> all right so um we're just having a little bit of pre-show banter about what stories on hack and use we should uh, talk about and there's a couple of things so let's get started with the the whole driverless cars thing i know peter you had a little um insight into that so what, what was that well, I mean, just as a very quick recap of what it's all about, you know, we're talking about the Google driverless cars. We probably saw there was a video about a year ago where they were first showing this off. They were showing a car going down a freeway somewhere, and there's no one behind the wheel. Um, but, yeah, Kushik uh, Dutta is saying essentially an unintended effect of all of this isn't just the safety and everything. It's the fact that everyone doesn't necessarily need a car. You know, they'll be so... You know, useful and they can move around they can go between different families that uh, we could all sort of share cars essentially um which i think is complete nonsense <laughs> well uh, basically the, the the discussion seems to be very centered around it's gonna it's gonna be a hugely massively disruptive business model no i think it's all kind of like a bit of a pipe dream it's a bit like you know oh if we have a more powerful computer we're all going to share one um you know and the fact is you know we do to a certain extent we have you know obviously cloud services and things like that but with cars, I don't know, people become so attached to cars and, you know, our car is just like a big, basically trash container on wheels um, that my daughter and wife just fill up with fast food wrappers, essentially. <laughs> right. um, and I just can't see this working with uh, shared cars. I just can't see people wanting to do that. But uh, at least not in the next, you know, 10, 20 years, it would really take a massive shift. Did you read through the comments on Hacker News about it? Like one, That's one... a good place to avoid. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, one, one, of the, one of the comments that I thought was interesting was, they didn't really necessarily agree with what that guy was postulating, but they thought that it would be possible that cars could become like the new internet cafes. So basically you'd get into your car and you'd say, okay, go to this place and you'll just, you'll do your work while your car's going on route and you don't have to drive it. <laughs> I've, got, I've got to say, I, I totally buy into this. Oh, you um, do? You're taking yeah, the opposite oh, opinion. Absolutely. Um, although it is a pipe dream and it's probably not something that's going to happen for a hundred years, but um I think it would be great because I, I, I know you're similar, Justin, but uh, I don't drive. I know you've only recently learned to drive. I've lived in London my whole life. I do not need a car. 
Uh, but but occasionally you really want want to go outside of London and, and do certain things. So to be able to kind of whistle for one that comes on its own quite happily and lets you run off and go and do something is is great. It's almost like um, a sort of super usable taxi. And if it reduces the amount of cars in London, oh my god, that would be amazing. Well, I mean, the thing the thing is, Peter, that already in London they have bike sharing schemes and car sharing schemes. So why why wouldn't why wouldn't it happen with with this? I guess there's just different types of people. I, I mean, I guess I'm looking at this story and thinking this doesn't extrapolate to like everyone, but then perhaps it doesn't need to because, as you say, they have sharing schemes. I know in Copenhagen they have a massively successful uh, scheme where they all share bikes and things like that. Um, so, yes, this could work for the sort of people that are using like Zipcar already. I think Zipcar is one that's yeah. in the US, isn't it, where you can all kind of, you know, you go to a central point and there's cars that you can pick up on the street and so on. Uh, but it would not work for me. Um, I mean, I've had a a car sort of ever since I could have one essentially. And my wife's been pretty much the same and we just kind of almost like live around them in a sense. So it wouldn't work for us, but perhaps it would work, you know, in, in, in very big majorly populated areas like London, it could work quite well, I guess. I was going to ask, do you live in a big populated area, Peter? I live in the middle of nowhere, pretty <laughs> much in the middle of nowhere within the middle of nowhere. So, uh, <laughs> yes, yeah, I need that's a car. Pretty far. Yeah. I can, I can see exactly that being a, a good reason not to do this and i guess this is kind of like the middle america kind of argument you know like this is going to apply to a lot of america um but yeah i mean if you take somewhere like a more like a san francisco or even a silicon valley or somewhere like that then you know i could see this probably working for the sort of people that are you know perhaps young engineers people that don't necessarily need a car for you know much of the day uh whereas in my case you know i've got a, a two-year-old daughter and my wife and you know they want they going out almost like every single day to different places to do different activities. So well, of course, uh, if this is going to work know. anywhere, it's going to work in China. I mean, there it would have a massive impact that kind of thinking. Mm. And it would be cheaper for them, I guess, because they wouldn't all need to buy an individual car. So people would so they'd club in to buy cars, right? So fifty people would 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 uh, gang up and basically pay for a car. But you'd hate to get into the car after Peter and his family had been in it. In it exactly, you? Yeah, exactly. Just be full of <laughs> McDonald's wrappers. <laughs> Now, um, something that you said there, Peter, you said, um, I don't know whether it was tongue-in-cheek or you being serious about going into Hacker News and looking at the comments, um, just because I thought that's interesting, because I do always go into Hacker News, I'll always look at the top comment, and I'll kind of do that as like a first thing before I go and look at the story, because I find that it, I generally get quite a good synopsis of what's going on. What's, what do you think? Do you disagree with that? or? Um, no, I think it's a good thing to do, um, but it does seem lately that kind of wading into the comments and getting a bit too involved can be dangerous. And I've seen this sentiment among even like a few of the top uh, Hacker News users, people are saying, oh, the comments are starting to get a little bit messy and there's always kind of arguments and entrenched positions that you keep seeing coming out. Right. Uh, so, you know, if you are short for time, it's probably best avoiding them unless you can, you're can. you really good at avoiding that temptation to uh, dive in. Okay, so okay, so really the issue is, is it's a time suck from, from your perspective. It's like, oh God, this guy's saying such a stupid thing. I'm going to have to school him. It's not just that. It's I mean, it's it's not just a time sink. It can be a bit of a kind of almost an emotional sink if you become too wrapped up in it. And you, you'll see sometimes the same conversations happen again and again and again on Hacker News. So whenever a, an article about, I don't know, females in engineering, for example, which, you know, I'm sure pretty much we all agree that uh, it would be excellent to have uh, more women in engineering. And it's ridiculous when people do these offensive things and, you know, really put people off of or not just women, but anyone like different races, whatever. But the same argument happens on Hacker News every time. You get these people on way off radical on one side, way off radical on the other side. Oh, no, we should be able to swear, do everything. Um, and it never wins. No one ever gets anywhere. So yep. uh, I think well, that's what happens with a lot of them. 
it's the typical internet forum back and forth. I mean, it's it's the equivalent. Hacker News comments is the one step above YouTube. It's like the intellectual <laughs> uh, one step above. It's uh, I agree with you. Looking at the first comment, maybe the first couple, they can't. Often it's somebody who's involved with the with the article, so there's a good sensible reply. But after that, it's just depressing. These people firing back uh, across at each other. That's what Dig used to be like, right? I mean, I thought that yeah. the Hacker News was supposed to fix that that Dig problem. It's got too big. Yeah, got it's too got big. Too big. And I've also seen that Paul Paul Graham's doing some cheeky things, like temporarily changing the header of Hacker News, so it's the like someone's name news or whatever. That's and allowed. He can do. No, I know he can, yeah. but it's like it, that's that's it's kind of script kiddy, isn't it? A little bit. <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> look, I am this the place. benevolent dictator model. <laughs> Say what? I mean, I'm a fan of the benevolent dictator model. It works really well for uh, programming languages. I think it works well for uh, community sites as well, which, again, because yeah, I'm involved in some, I do. I just really like that model of, I'm in charge, you know, you guys uh, get on with it. Right. So do you think that, um, do you think that there's going to be like a, an end of, of Hacker News where it just gets too much like Dig, it gets too bitchy or whatever, and then we see some other, some new system rise? Oh, we're going to see something else come along, but uh, it actually be interesting. I wonder what Alex thinks about it, just because, I mean, I guess I've, I'm quite wear my opinion on my sleeve about this, and I think definitely something will come along pretty much like Facebook did with MySpace or any other service ever. Um, well, that's that's easy to say because something always does, But yeah. and I totally agree. I think it will. But Hacker News isn't YouTube. It's not full of kittens, um, you know, climbing over each other. It's for hackers and engineers. So oh, I'm hoping that there will be a level of intellect there that will that will have a have a limit on how crappy it gets but don't you think that facebook for example is so entrenched that it might actually be impossible to topple and i'll i'll, I'll give you some evidence to back that up coke and pepsi right so coke coke was very entrenched and along comes pepsi and it doesn't topple it it just becomes like a major market player rather than actually changing the the landscape but pepsi's worse it tastes horrible no, I know exactly. Pepsi's worse. It doesn't taste as good as Coke. But the, but the point is this: is like, is Facebook? Because we said, okay, whatever service there is, we said my you know MySpace, Facebook comes along. But can anyone usurp Facebook? This may be an article that you could write, and it would like do really well on Hacker News because I guess you made a very interesting argument there. Is there this kind of perhaps tipping point for web services where they become so entrenched and so part of the the cultural kind of fabric that they are unbeatable? And I guess I've just kind of restated your question, but. I, I have no answer to that, it's a, but it's a very interesting uh, topic. Alex? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> very interesting, but not to Alex. <laughs> well, no, I mean, you're, I think you're absolutely right. It's very entrenched. It's huge. Can anything topple it? Um, I think Facebook, well, I was going to say Facebook has to make some mistakes, and then maybe somebody can topple it. But, but they've, they've made, made so many mistakes. So many. Yeah. So um, I don't know. I don't know. They they seem pretty unstoppable. But I remember um, there's actually a TV show in the UK on on uh, an interview with Zuckerberg, and he was talking about how he's actually relatively tiny as a company. They're relatively tiny compared to uh, to Google. So I wonder if if maybe Google can crush Facebook if they're quick enough. Well, well they're too big as well. They're trying to they're trying to crush Facebook with yeah, their miserably with their circles. Well, I don't know. I mean, a lot of people were, were very very in love with um, what is what's it called? It's Google Plus. Yeah, a lot of people were very in love with Google Plus when it first came out, and it seems to be growing. Yeah, but I don't know about you guys, but uh, I know Jason uses it a bit. I see his posts on there, but 
I, I have loads of friends in my circles, but no one posts there. No one really goes there. I, I know I don't. And it's partly because um, I can't seem to integrate Twitter and Facebook and Google. I don't want to update all three. And yeah. I can't seem to integrate them. I have managed Twitter and Facebook whenever I tweet Facebook updates, but I can't seem to hook that into, into Google+. Plus. So it just gets left. I just leave it. Exactly Peter, the same. So, Peter, you're the same. You haven't gotten into Google+. Plus. No, not at all. And I mean, the thing that really turned me off about that is that you come along with these circles and it's work. Like it's, it's literally work. You have to, you know, add people in. And even if you don't add people, if they add you, then you need to add them to a circle. So I need to start thinking now, are yeah. you an acquaintance? Are you, yeah. you know, how have I done my circles? And I can't be bothered doing that. Um, <laughs> so I've literally just left. It's just a big pile of notifications. And if I ever get bored, I might go and do it. But I've got, I see no reason. I've already got Twitter for that. I've already got Facebook. Uh, to a certain extent, you know, it's, it's it's work, and I don't want to do work when I go online. This is the internet's just for playing on and reading Reddit. Well, for me, I mean, <laughs> I can't use Facebook, it, like because I just think all these people who are following me. I mean, if I posted any of the stuff that I tweet about, all all my fat friends and family just aren't going to give a crap about whatever I say. You know, like they don't care about any of this tech stuff. But um, with Twitter, you know, I've carefully cultivated that following of people who are interested in tech. So for me, Twitter works very well for expressing myself. And Facebook, I just feel like, oh, it's the small town that followed me, you know? Yeah. So I, I, I guess you just, you know, whatever your personality is, you choose one of the big three, I guess. Yeah, I think, I'm, you know, in my case, if I, I don't actually tend to do anything on Facebook or any other social network that is specifically for my family. Uh, you know, they're people that I meet in real life and I talk to on the phone and things like that. Whereas online, I literally just have this one persona and it's pretty much, you know, tech, tech, rant at this, whatever. Um and that's it. You know, I don't care because my dad does read. Uh, I know he does read my Twitter account and he actually is quite into tech so he can get it. But other people who are in the family, you know, probably just don't engage with me online. I'm not really that interested in doing that there because I've got it in real life. Yeah, but what's interesting, I mean, we're, we're at the one end of, of the Facebook scale. But you look at kids now with Facebook accounts, teenagers and students, they have thousands of friends because they've added them throughout their school years. And I really wonder how that's going to play out when they're older. Well, my family don't use email anymore. They just use Facebook. Like, so all, all, all my kind of, like, let's say, technically unsophisticated friends send all of their emails through Facebook, all of their communications through Facebook. Oh, my it's, God. It's, it's the only way that we one. communicate anymore. That's, I, oh, dear, that's awful. So, <laughs> so Zuckerberg's getting his wish. Yeah. He's turning the web inside out. Um, okay, well, anyway, we've, we've done that one. Um, so... What was the what was the next one we're going to talk about? It was the PayPal um, versus Stripe stuff. So yeah, well, I, yeah, I really wanted to uh, start you off on that because uh, I've got to admit I'm, I'm doing some serious catch up. I've been I've been ill for a couple of months, so I've been doing some serious catch up on on texting, and I'm about three behind. But I, I the last one I was listening to, you were discussing with Jason about uh, uh, going with Stripe, and it seemed pretty certain that you were going with Stripe. I wonder if you can update us if you haven't already in previous episodes well i'll just give a just give a quick thing so first of all any is a marketplace that myself and jason the normal host of the show um, are building together and it's a marketplace for just-in-time expertise so you it's you can go there and find a technical expert and hire them for a couple of hours to do what you need and one of the things we, one of the problems we need to sort out is how are we going to pay our experts and how are we going to take payments i've been using paypal with my app plugio.com uh, for the last two years. And honestly, I've never had any problem with PayPal whatsoever until recently, until 
the last, I don't know, like four months, people just keep, it's not that I'm having a problem with PayPal. It's just people keep on saying, I'm not signing up because you use PayPal. So a lot of people basically are taking a hard line stand and saying, as long as you're using PayPal, we're never going to do business with you. So it's kind of getting to a point where I'm going, okay, I'm actually going to have to change Plugio as well because, you know, and another thing is, is that um, the way that PayPal does their, their subscription payments, well, the way that I've integrated it, it's not very integrated. You have to kind of go off to the PayPal site and you can't manage your subscription very well. So I think that I'm going to be plugging Stripe into Plugio.com and we're, we're pretty much going to be doing that with, um, with Anyfoo as well. And the way that we're going to send payments out to people is, so Stripe's going to collect money into our central bank account, which is like a real bank account. And then we'll use this service called webmasterchecks.com. And with that, they have an API where they can automate either the sending of money via ACH or by actually mailing checks or by sending money to PayPal. So people will have like a number of options of how they receive their money. Just quickly on that, um, it occurred to me when listening, because you said you did say that before, um, I guess there's no international support for any food at the moment. So being from the UK, we, I couldn't get paid effectively. No, you would. You'd be able to get paid via PayPal. Oh, okay. So if I had PayPal, okay, yeah, that's yeah. fine. And that's I, fine. I do actually think that it can do international processing as well. It's just that you're going to have to pay a little bit extra to get it wired to you. Sure, sure. Okay. Okay, back to Stripe. It's it's a pretty good payment system. Um, it's very, very simple API, probably the simplest API out there. Um, yay. Yay, Stripe. <laughs> <laughs> so did you see those articles about it? I did. Um, I don't have too much of a like a kind of viewpoint to say, okay, I think... I mean, the, the main thing is is that people really, really hate PayPal. Yeah. So they're, they're just generating this massive negative brand sentiment. And I, I haven't really seen it other than it people just telling me that they hate PayPal. Well, what do you think the problem is over there? Because they seem to have become critical mass, that point to where a, a, a cool new startup that's changing the world suddenly becomes evil and hated. It seems to do with the donation stuff. Like, I think that possibly people are using PayPal for money money laundering and um the donation stuff somehow they seem to be freezing accounts that are that are doing donations uh. so i think that's that's the impression that i get from the articles that i've read and so so people are getting pretty upset right because you know when you do donations it's for a charity right or something that's close to your heart it's a yeah. passion it's a passion project right so they're freezing accounts on passion projects which is kind of not doesn't make sense i know it's strange isn't it I think it's kind of difficult for me to wade in too much on the Stripe issue just because, as Alex has said, you know, we're in the UK and we can't actually use it. So I guess this is a bit where you're American. If you are if you can use Stripe, you're probably American. Um, but yeah, I've been using PayPal for what just over 10 years now and had just a really good experience with it the whole time. It's been a real lifesaver and just I use it so much. Um, but yes, you know, there is kind of this friction against PayPal, but... My uh, all the new stuff that I'm going to be doing, I've actually just uh, got a PayPal, kind of what they call it here, like a, a pro account or something. Um, so literally, you take the details in and then you pass them to PayPal through an API. So people won't be able to tell that I'm using PayPal, which is uh, kind of cool. Um, but yeah, it does seem that, that you know PayPal have got this kind of negative sentiment, and people, I think, are perhaps air quotes misusing PayPal. Um, but the problem is, is that their terms and conditions are so long. Uh, that a lot of people just don't read them um, and they don't know that you should be doing these kind of uh, just spontaneous kind of donation type things with it. So people just expect it to be almost like a wallet, essentially, and any way that you can get money into that wallet is A-OK. 
but uh, from PayPal's you know point of view, it's not. You have to be quite strict. Did you guys ever see Young Frankenstein the movie? No, I have not. Okay, well, there's the, the, there's this one point in in maybe this happens in other Frankenstein movies where you'll get the whole rabble outside with pitchforks and like flaming torches, all kind of shouting, and that's what it feels to me like. It just feels like we've you know there's there's on Hacker News. There's always something that people have pitchforks and, and torches and are just like screaming about. True, and but uh, uh, the problem with PayPal at the moment, like you say, it does seem to be with the donation things, which is quite sensitive because, you know, people are trying to do good uh, and, and uh, PayPal seem to be freezing accounts, shutting people down, um, you know, when they're trying to donate money. Yeah. Um, and, th- and then the, and the, the trick with one of these articles is that uh, – they they get they still take their fee for every transaction. So that so they're trying to that somebody puts a donate button on their website, people start donating, PayPal takes a fee for every one. And then PayPal freezes the account and says you've got to return this money to everybody. So they have to return the money. And then P- PayPal takes a fee for every for every transfer. So, yeah, so you're talking about regretsy.com, cats one, yeah. kids zero. So he, exactly. he goes into he says, so to recap, so after his long article, he basically says, PayPal allowed me to use a donate button and they got a portion of the donations. Then they made me return the donations, but they kept a portion of the fees on the donations. They allowed me to use a buy now button to sell gifts individually, and they got a portion of the sales. Then made me return the sales and kept a portion of the fees on the sales. They processed the toy purchases and made fees on that. So basically, they've made a fortune and they haven't actually done anything for me, is what he's saying. So, Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd be upset if that was me as well. Yeah, I mean, we've and, seen it happen and- with real products as well, because... Uh, the the infamous Minecraft, which I'm sure we've all at least seen, even if we haven't played, um, they froze um, Notch's account when he had about seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars in it. Uh, this was what late 2010, so it was just like as things were picking up with Minecraft. Now he's made like tens of millions of euros with it, um, but they froze his his account, and you know literally he's just selling access. Uh, to a game so he wasn't even sort of taking donations at the time as far as i'm aware so it can happen to anyone but it does seem that they do this kind of review process and to be honest if you've got that amount of money coming in all of a sudden into a, an account so there's like literally you know you have that chance to have seven hundred thousand dollars in in an account in a very short period of time i think it's a good laundering. thing that they're keeping yeah. an eye on it yeah, that that is like that is the hallmark of money laundering, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, what really matters is how they resolve the problem, and that seems to be where the biggest problems have occurred on Hacker News. It's where PayPal do something, but then they're uncontactable. You, you can't get in touch with them to resolve it, and that seems to be when people get really angry. But people on in the main seem to accept that services like that do sometimes need to lock down or do need to hold uh, withhold a bit of money, because um, I mean that can even happen with a merchant account. They might want to take. Uh, from an, a sort of an unknown business, they might want to take a percentage and hold it back for ninety days or something. Um, but it just that. seems it's just communication. Seems bit, it seems a bit strong. It's like um, you know, we we we're a bit suspicious of you, so we're going to throw you in jail until we find out if you've done anything wrong. It's like, well, no, excuse me, you know, we haven't done anything wrong. Find out if I've broken the law first before you incarcerate me or, or take all my money away and stop <laughs> me making any more money. But nothing and, works uh, like that. I mean, like the DMCA, for example, doesn't work like that. You know, like YouTube will take down a video as they have actually sort of coming back to another Hacker News article about the mega upload uh, music video. They can just literally Universal or, you know, whoever can go to YouTube and say, pull down this video um, using DMCA. And they don't actually have to initially have complete proof. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a great example of how broken it is. I mean, that's that's terrible. We shouldn't we should be complaining about things like that. Terrible processes. 
Oh, can, is, I, can I just quickly say, PayPal did actually <laughs> fix that problem with uh, with Regretsy. Oh, and they, really? Yeah, they said the they sent an email and said, uh, you know, sorry about it. it was a complete mistake, uh, and they've offered a hundred dollar donations to each of the two hundred families that that they that that the site was originally trying to support. So they they have uh, apologized sincerely and 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 made amends. Oh, so PayPal aren't aren't the bad guys after? Yeah, I think it's just you know it's a typical huge company. Yeah, who, who have some idiots on support. I mean, the, the you saw the article, the the support calls that he made were just ridiculous with some idiot who didn't know what was going on uh, and it's just yeah too big one of the things that we've been discussing with any is like how do we deal with dispute disputes right and it's, it's going to happen where someone works for someone and they feel like they haven't done the correct work or whatever and we're con- we're kind of thinking we don't want to get into that so mm. what we've created is basically a fully automated dispute resolution system what do you think about that it's going to be the the YouTube dispute thing, isn't it? Where anyone can block people. I don't know. I don't know. How does it work? We haven't fully worked the um, algorithm out, but what it will do is... Money it, mo. <laughs> not, not exactly <laughs> that, but it'll kind of go like, okay, you can keep 50% of the money and get 50% back kind of thing in an automated fashion. I hope mm. you have a really good contract for this. <laughs> I mean, just the, the fact that, you know, like that people are going to sign up and they might not know what's going on, but if they agree to your contract, then they pretty much don't have a leg to stand on if they hate that system. So, Okay, I, this is the yeah. point where Jason's going to be listening to this show and he's going to be going, Justin, damn Shut it, up. why are you talking about that? I need to be on to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, uh, hey, don't blame me, blame Jason. It's his idea. You <laughs> can blame Jason for everything. <laughs> no, it, to be honest, I think it is a good idea and I, 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 I haven't actually gone through the, um, the detail of it with you guys because I don't have it in my head. Um, but maybe that's something we should talk about myself and Jason next show because I'm sure that it's, it is a little bit of a contentious thing to do. Yeah, it's difficult. It's very difficult. Obviously, no one has successfully cracked it because there's so many complaints. Right. So one of the things that I was just talking about there is uh, don't be a free user, that that mm. post. Um, I'm guessing that this is pretty dear to Peter's heart because you've had so many free users and now you've started to monetize them. So what do you think about this sentiment of this post? Um, yeah, I thought this was a, you know an interesting one and it definitely pushes a lot of buttons and Touches a lot of people's hearts. So like uh, David Heinmeier Hansen of 37 Signals, I think he waded in um, on this at some point and was saying, yeah, this is obvious. We've been saying this for years. Uh, you know, if you've got a, a, a big free service, um, you know, see if you can let them know, you know, that they should be charging for it. And we actually saw an example of this with, a, I think there's a company called Xmarks that does like a, a bookmarking system, a little bit like um, Pinboard does. And the person behind it was running it, you know, as a free service and they had to shut it down because, you know, they're literally just leaking, you know, losing money on, you know, spending servers and this, that and the other. And uh, people are like, just charge for it, charge for it. So eventually they did. And apparently now the service is thriving. So that's kind of like the angle that this article takes is that if you are using a big service um, and it's free and it looks like it's going to go you know, down the tubes, press it shouldn't have got to that point. People should be wanting to pay. And uh, yeah, as you say, you know, I've got lots of different services that are um, free and I've begun to monetize them, but I'm not monetizing them in the perhaps the way that they're suggesting in this piece, which is that it'd be good for people to pay, you know, like monthly fee and actually subscribe and be a full blown user like you would be with a, you know, first send signals product or the like. Um, I'm actually finding ways to monetize free audiences, which is perhaps a bit more more like a media uh, take on this than an applications uh, take, which I know you and uh, the guy at Pinboard will be more familiar with. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's a slightly different situation. Media has been doing this for a long, long time. 
um, with advertising and adding extra products in, whereas actually getting free web services to charge a lot more, I think that's a great idea. Um, but it's something actually probably that applies a bit more to you than me in this case, because I, I consider myself more to be on the media side of things. But they don't mention the fact that free is basically um, like it's a marketing cost. Like mm-hmm. if, you do, if you do free correctly, this is how you actually market your site to get your users, to get your paid users. And basically, if you're not offering something free, well, then the user is probably going to be using a competition service without ever having without you ever having a chance of turning them into a paid user but you need right. to charge at some point i mean i think yeah. that's the point they're making here or do right. you do does facebook well yeah that's i mean is there it, that's interesting because yammer basically is the same as facebook but they charge right and they're they're doing it for a business use but facebook obviously doesn't charge and never could yeah, but Facebook isn't a service that is, is really looking like it's on its last legs at this point. You know, they are actually making money. Um, I think really what, you know, he's getting at in this piece is, is it's services that are very small. So if we one of us started up a service and let's say we could, with some advertising, make it make $1,000 a month, you know, how interesting is $1,000 a month to us to keep it going? But there may be people out there and may even be a, a wide share of the audience that would be happy to pay even like a few dollars a month. And if you've got sort of 10, 20,000 users of the service, uh, you know, where does the, you know, where does the money add up on that? Um, so I think that's what he's trying to get people to consider more is perhaps you should turn these side projects that are popular into uh, businesses that you take money for so that you can put the time into them. Yeah, yeah, but he's got this this simplistic chart that says, to illustrate, I've prepared this handy chart. And there it shows a free column and a paid column. And down the left-hand side, it's it's stagnant, growing and exploding. So it's saying... If, if you've got a stagnant business and it's free, you're losing money. If it's a paid business, you're making money. If you've got a growing business and it's free, you're losing more money. And if it's paid, you're making more money. And if it's an exploding business, you're losing lots of money. And if it's paid, you're making lots of money. I don't... Well, it's hardly a sophisticated article, I mean, at the end <laughs> yeah. of the day. It's, it's very much that sort of uh, rhetoric that does very well on Hacker News. Right. Um, but it's really just very simplistic business advice. Right, right, yeah. Because I was thinking that that chart's not quite right. Because you could be free and exploding and making money and also losing money. You know, in the sense of your like, essentially, your free accounts are uh, your paid marketing. Really, you're paying for marketing. You're still but, making money. Like Evernote is the classic example. Evernote has so many users, but they are actually turning over a decent chunk of change. Even though I, I, I think, like Peter says, I mean, the point it, it's not so much uh, proper businesses it is it, it is those small he says mom and pop projects right. uh, and if they're not taking your money then expect them to nosedive once they start getting popular so don't don't put all your eggs in that basket and start using that system for your project or your 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 company because six months down the line they're not going to be able to pay their server bills and you're going to lose that service okay so if it's a business if it's like a business use case just pay I mean, that's what Peldy said when we interviewed him in the very beginning of texting. He was like, look, I, don't, I never want to, to use any service that I'm not paying for if, it, if it's my business involved. He said that about um, that uh, tracking software, Pivotal Tracker. Yeah. And, you know, he said he was kind of stressed that they, that they were free. They are actually paid now, so he's got his wish. But uh, that exactly. took like two years to happen. And it's cheap as chips normally anyway, and it's tax deductible, so why not? Right. Cool. So was there any um, of those links that uh, you felt particularly passionate about peter uh, I the air france one was actually really good um just because i've sort of followed this air france uh, 447 story for well since it ever happened it's one of those kind of big events that i've always just found really intriguing because i've always had like an interest in aviation 
Um, and it was just nice to see popular mechanics actually take the uh, the tapes from the um, you know the voice uh, cockpit voice recorder and actually boil it down kind of as, as a minute by minute. And uh, they just did a really good job of that. I really enjoyed reading that. And it's often that I, I don't make it to the second page of articles, but with that one, I did um, actually read the entire thing. It really gripped me from the start. Yeah, me and, too. And wasn't yeah, it utterly good. terrifying? It was terrifying <laughs> because it was just, you know, one guy's human error, basically. Well, three guys. Well, yeah, but it was like the, the, the impression I got from it, it was like this one guy who was kind of willful about his opinion. And uh, ultimately, they did what he kind of said. And as a result, they just didn't really understand they were in this stool situation. And I don't know. I, I kind of got it was almost a, a group hallucination where they they were they were ignoring the stall warning and not talking to each other. Like one guy was pulling back on the stick while the other guy was pushing forward on it, and they weren't they just weren't communicating even when the captain came in. Okay, so the cat, yeah, and that, that was the, that was another issue because the captain wasn't in. There was no one specifically giving you know who was in charge to make the calls right that was another kind of issue with it yeah i just love the fact that the captain came in and the first thing that he said um, was essentially what the hell are you guys doing <laughs> um, yeah i just you know i just see it as like almost like this comical like airline movie um kind of moment. what are you guys doing like they're like yanking on the controls and like the planes just falling out of the sky um obviously it wasn't exactly like that but uh it often it actually seems like there was a slight failure here of um, not just training, um, but user interface as well, because there are various uh, things that they could have used to actually help rectify this situation um, that are not actually directly in the pilot's line of view. Um, so there were some issues to do with that. Uh, but also the fact about the asynchronous controls was a part of this, is that they couldn't actually tell that, um, what's it, Robert Bernan, I think his name is, he was actually pulling up on the stick for nearly the entire po- uh you know, descent essentially. Um, but the guy on the other stick couldn't tell this because in uh, this um, plane, the controls are asynchronous and you can't tell from one control to the other what the other control is doing. It There's literally no feedback, kind of averages it out. Yeah. 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 Um, and the same with the thrust as well, because one of the rules of, yeah, you know, if you do have like your pitot tubes have blocked up, um, what you do is you go to 85% thrust and a 5%. Um, you know, you kind of point your plane up slightly and then you can just about maintain, it's almost like a tick over in a car. Um, you'll keep going at the same level and at the same uh, correct speed to a certain point. Um, but they didn't do that. And, uh, yeah, the reason is they didn't have access to looking at the, uh, you know, what was happening to the throttles and all that type of thing, because there just wasn't a lot of feedback in the cabin. Um, and actually a BBC documentary covered all of this about a year ago. And this is where I've sort of pulled a lot of this knowledge from. Um, and they really nailed what the whole problem was. But they were very generous, and they were saying, "Well, this couldn't just be error because no pilot would actually be this dumb to just cause this problem." <laughs> um, so there must have been something else. But all they could conclude that it was some sort of human error. Um, and now we've seen in this article it was. Uh, so actually, I think very hats off to the people that investigated this without the the black boxes, because um, the 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 you know what people thought had happened actually was the thing that had happened, and they did such a great job. Here's the thing. Is is this error like where you just make a little accident or is this error where you like I I understand that it resulted in death and that people died. But what I'm saying is is it kind of like a small little error that may potentially be easy to make? Um I think the problem is is that they aren't trained. Uh most pilots now because I mean think about back in the 70s and 80s a lot of the pilots had been flying in the war. 
um, you know, this was actually a very common way to get pilots at the time. They'd get people that had flown in, you know, the Air Force and things like that. And they understood a lot of the physics of flight, whereas now most of the training for these very big uh, passenger planes is all done in simulators. And most of the simulators don't have the full range of movement um, to do things like uh, stalls, for example, Um, because it's very, very hard to stall uh, a big airliner like this. And the problem was, is that you might remember when reading this article, is that the stall warning was going off all the time. They just did, yeah, they Um, didn't. But the problem is, is that the software on the Airbus won't allow you to stall the plane um, Mm. when it's in um, these various different modes. And they kind of entered this mode called alternate law. But the problem is they're not really trained very much to deal with these laws. Um, So they may be making massive assumptions about what the plane's doing, and it's not. And at that point, they lose trust in the plane. So they start doing instinctively. They think, you know, from a very human-animal point of view, right, I'm just going to keep pulling the stick up because I need to get this plane up. But they're not understanding that to stop the plane from stalling, um, the plane is they're not thinking, well, hang on, I need to keep the nose up because I'm being asked to, but I don't want to stall. So we're going to start losing. And that's kind of the point that they missed. Um, and it just, I think, a big failure of training um, in this case and a big failure of the uh, the pilot who was a lot more experienced than these two other guys that he'd left in charge um, to not, you know, get straight back into that seat and uh, get involved. Um, I mean, does, is this a case for, you know, just fly by a wire? Well, that's kind of what caused the problem to mm. a certain extent. I mean, you can't have an entire plane always be fly by wire from the start of the journey to the end. Um, there has to be some involvement, and you know, as we saw with this article, the uh, you know the tubes freezing up caused the plane to come out of autopilot um, because you know you don't necessarily want autopilot dealing with that situation. You want well-trained um, staff making good decisions, and unfortunately, that's the part of the chain that uh, lost here. We may see this with these driverless cars as well, but at least the thing with the driverless car is that it can stop. You know, I was going to say, you can roll to a stop, you're done. <laughs> if you stall, like, you're not going to drop thirty thousand feet. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, Alex, was there any was there any of those stories that you felt particularly passionate about? I quite like the uh, the seventeen year old girl who won hundred thousand dollars, I believe, for uh, creating a cancer killing nanoparticle. That is very cool. I thought that was remarkable, actually. Um, I'm I personally, I'm a big fan of the singularity. Uh, uh, movement, I guess, because uh, I, I've read Ray Kurzweil's book, The Singularity is Near, which which is fascinating. He talks about how biotechnology and nanotechnology and robotics are like the new internet movement. These are the things that are exploding now, uh, things that are really going to take off and take us towards this singularity. And and to read a story about a 17-year-old girl who's who's created this, what they're calling a Swiss army knife of cancer treatment. Um, they say she's developed a nanoparticle that can be delivered to the site of a tumor through uh, a drug. And once it's there, it kills the cancer stem cells. Um, I mean, it's just incredible. This, this, she's only 17. And she's got this enormous level of understanding required to create this nanoparticle. Apparently, she spent a thousand hours. Well, that's, that, that's what surprised me because it's, it's only a thousand hours. Like uh, it, that to me, that doesn't seem like a huge amount of time. Well, true. I mean, she's obviously a very smart girl, but she's focused that that amount of time. Yeah. Uh, on this kind of stuff, and it's these kind of people that are going to push us towards the singularity. I think. Remind me what the singularity is again. Well, it's this abstract moment in time where uh, uh, computers will. Uh, become 
not just as intelligent as humans, because that would probably not really progress us any further than we're going right now, but that when they become more intelligent than us uh, and, and can do our kind of level of thinking and reasoning, um, but at a much faster pace because of the, the, the benefits of being on you know, hard disks in silicon or across the internet, um, once they start accelerating, because they'll start designing their 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 uh, their their children, the the next sort of generations, which will be even more faster, and then it becomes this, uh, or rather, it, it already is. We're at a, an exponential curve um, that is increasing, increasing. Rayko as well says that we're 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 really starting to take off on this exponential curve. So we're in that kind of bend, and once it starts to become vertical, is is pretty much where the singularity occurs. So we're headed for that. But I, I'm not sure why the 17-year-old um, creating the cancer-killing nanoparticle, it helps, helps computers get faster. Well, what it is, I was, yeah, that wasn't entirely clear, but Ray <laughs> talks about how te- the technology to, that will lead us towards this singularity, that, that's biotechnology, nanotechnology, and robotics, um, okay. where we will become one with, computing where humans will not necessarily distinguish between their biological selves and their robotic or, or selves as we as we blend which nanoparticles perhaps will will be will blend with machines okay um wondering what to look at next i mean I just, just one i wanted to pick up on just very briefly was uh the one about the guy with multiple degrees failing the standardized test for children Oh yeah, um, that was that was weird. I, I like one one half of me is like, yeah. So what? And another half is, oh, I kind of see their point. I just think the point, yeah, you know, the, the 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 real crux of this is that this guy decided to take one of the modern standardized tests that um, kids do. I think it was in America. It's probably a, a, an SAT. Um, we have different tests all around the world, not just uh, SATs. But he took basically this test that was for uh, teenagers and didn't do very well. And um, he was really picking up on the mathematical. Uh, kind of angle to it and he was saying you know i don't use this type of math in my day-to-day work and yet i'm you know very wealthy and i'm doing very well um and he even asked kind of his fellow sort of business owners you know do you need this type of math in your work and they're like no we don't need this um but the thing problem i have with this is that you know these tests are aimed at students who are trying to learn and we do need to spend time learning things that aren't necessarily useful in our careers um, because it's like when we're, we're babies, we, we start to play, you know, we play with Lego bricks and things like that. And you can't say at that point, well, actually you're just wasting time playing with Lego. You should be learning how to use Excel. Um, you know, you <laughs> need to, your, your brain is molded by all these kind of formative experiences. And that includes learning things like doing Shakespeare, um, you know, and doing things at school, like, you know, even physical education, you might say, well, I'm not using, I don't need to know how to play rugby as an adult. Um, but the fact is you learn teamwork and things from that. And again, learning things like uh, trigonometry and doing physics and stuff like that at school, m- it kind of makes your mind what it is as an adult. Whereas if you just focused at school entirely on you know things to do with the world of work, so working with computers and doing Excel spreadsheets and stuff like that, you would be a very you know unrounded person um, yeah, at no, the end yeah. of the day. But, but you also, you don't exactly have to be clever to become rich. I mean, no. I, know, I know a lot of people who are very, very rich, and it's nothing to do with being clever. It's more to do with being killer instinct, very aggressive, and just kind of ruthless, you know? Yeah, um, definitely. I think people perhaps put too much importance on these tests. Um, I definitely would agree with that, but I don't think that, you know, avoiding learning trigonometry is necessarily, like, 
something to do um you know you still need to have that experience even if perhaps you can't deal with it you need that experience of encountering something in life that is a big challenge um and perhaps you can't see the point in doing it how do you respond to that um you know that does have a big effect on how your personality turns out and who knows people that have done very successfully in business even though let's say they're dyslexic let's say they're not very good with numbers people who've gone on to do very well they may have done very well because they are responding to those challenges they've had, like at school. You know, they're like, well, actually, I've done pretty poorly at school, but I know I'm smart. I'm going to go and do this. Um, so I think, you know, we do need challenges in our lives, even if it's learning things that we think or even know that we're not going to need in future. Any thoughts on that, Alex? Well, yeah, I think I think the the ideally education for, for kids would be teaching them how to uh, overcome the challenges that have been in front of them. You know, here's some tools rather than, as is often the criticism with schools uh, being taught how to pass a test, you know, uh, here, here are here are the answers. Basically, you're you're, you're teaching them how to uh, fully understand the problem and hear, and use their tools to to get round it. One of recently one of the big problems in the UK that's been in the news is um, teaching computing uh, or other IC, ICT they call it uh, at schools. Has it all been about learning how to use words and put PowerPoint presentations together? And I remember doing that at school and thinking it was, you know, stupid and ridiculously easy. But uh, they're, they're thinking, you know, we don't get programmers from people who know how to use PowerPoint. This is a complete waste of time. We should be teaching them how to um, uh, uh, create the next uh, internet startup, how to how to learn how to use computers to to do whatever they want to do, rather than just here's how you use Word and it will get you a job at office uh, in an office somewhere. Well, the funny thing is, I mean, from my way of thinking, I think that education. I mean, this this is just because I'm kind of weird. Like, I didn't really, you know, do school. <laughs> like, I kind of finished when I was 16. But when I really started learning was when I really started getting curious. So I I almost think. Rather than tests, there should be ways to ignite people's curiosity, to kind of uh, tempt them to go down certain paths and really try and learn, just because they really want to from intri- in an intrinsic value. Yeah. So, um, all right, well, um, another one that I wanted to bring up was this Zendesk CEO calls Freshdesk a freaking ripoff. Yeah. Freshdesk so responds. So, for me, I'm glad you said that, because for me, I, like this, this is like a, a PR thing, right? I just can't believe that they're that they're getting into this so publicly. They've, they've ripoffornot.org, like it's an entire domain that's about this. They're publicly arguing with another company and saying, "Look, look how mean that company was to me, and look how good we are, and you know, use us." It's just to me, it just seems like a really bad. bad that's thing funny. To I have a complete opposite view of this. Um, is that I think they should be leaping on this for PR. Um, you know, and they were, they've been treated very badly. Um, I think it's, it's worth this sort of thing coming to the fore. I don't think it necessarily deserves an entire site like they've done, um, which may be, you know, they are trying to sort of cash in on it a little bit. Um, but the fact is, you know, people are saying stuff about them and that sort of stuff would disappear. It would go by the by, um, unless they point it out. Now, you know, you can take, don't you think that like, if you're someone who basically says, okay, I want to I fight with people, right? Because they're being mean to me. And I, these people are publicly standing up and fighting with Zendesk. Doesn't it make you think, oh, Freshdesk, you, you guys are like, you know, being a little kid about this? Well, that's a bit strong. I mean, they're defending themselves. They're not actively seeking this. They didn't seek this. 
they're defending themselves. I, and I agree with yeah, Peter. Yeah, I mean, a bunch of Indian cowboys. I mean, you know, the fact is they're getting even racial attacks. Yeah, right. Um, that's, no, at that's this true. Point, yeah. You know, and I don't know. I just think it was bizarre in the Hacker News comments. Some people, you know, obviously a lot stronger than you. I mean, you're taking a reasonably metered, uh, you know, kind of good balanced view on this, really, I think. But some people in the comments were like, how dare they even, like, bring up these criticisms? Well, it's like if someone's making some kind of racial um, comment to you, I think that's worth calling out. It's a bit like those things I was saying about the women in engineering. You know, you don't see the Hacker News kind of group think whenever those come along saying, oh, women should just stop whining. Well, in this case, they're saying, oh, these, you know, the, the people at uh, Fresh Dash should just stop whining. Well, why? Uh, okay, I think that my issue is is not that they're complaining about it, not even necessarily that they're doing it publicly. It's the way that they're doing Like, to me, it's it just, I don't know, it, it, it just feels like, they are maximizing on a bad vibe. And what, no, but why shouldn't they make the most out of this train crash that they didn't ask for? Why shouldn't they? Well, in a, in a blog post, right? Yeah, fair enough. In a blog post, you know, you just say in a blog post and you lay out the things that they've done there. But here they've made an entire website about it, ripoffornot.org. And it, it's kind of like, they said this to me, I said this to them, they said this to me. You know, like, I, I completely agree that they've been treated badly. Like, don't for one second think that I don't think that. I, I just feel it's a little bit of a, it's kind of like a public statement. Like, what, what I'm saying is, if I ever deal with Freshdesk, you know, well, wh- what are they going to publicly say about me? Do you know what I'm saying? It may be a little bit over the top. Do you know um, what I'm saying? Like, what, Yeah, I would agree with that. Like, if you, you know, if, if you do business with Freshdesk, what's going to happen to you? Are you going to be plastered all over some website one day? <laughs> is is the is the thing that I would be slightly worried about, and um, anyway. yeah, but this acts as a kind of a thing to stop. You know, I think when you have incidents like this, it's going to make us think twice about making those type of things. Like if I turned to someone and said, "Oh, you know, uh, all these black developers or these women developers can't put together a company or something along those types of lines," you know, if I know that this type of thing can occur and that sort of thing's going to do well on a site like Hacker News. You know, and I actually held those viewpoints, let's say. I'm going to think twice. Um, and that's what stories I think like this do. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's no question that it's unforgivable the way that they've been treated. But um, well, I, I wouldn't go as far as unforgivable. I think that's probably taking it a little bit too far. But, uh, you know, it, it's just something that, yeah, perhaps should have gone into a blog post. Um, it has been very much massaged into a, a big kind of uh, PR stunt, it seems. Um, but, you know, I don't, I don't blame them for it. But uh, I would say they're perhaps slightly over the top. <laughs> have, have you guys either, uh, either of you guys used um zendesk or freshdesk nope nope <laughs> <laughs> no i, I haven't either so, so I, I i can't i can't comment on the quality of it you know um i mean i've always really liked uh, the freshdesk um blogs and articles in the past i think they're both a freaking ripoff of my actual office desk <laughs> really what's <laughs> because it has desk in the name um and I, that seems to be the problem um that these guys were having with each other so yeah, I would rather stick with my normal desk. Well, but isn't competition good? I mean, co- like competition's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Well, not for the consumer, but for the people involved. <laughs> I mean, okay, look. So basically what Freshdesk are saying, a lot of customers are loving us and they're moving away from Zendesk to Freshdesk. So they're saying, that's a good thing. So are we now saying that that's a bad thing for Zendesk or doesn't it just make Zendesk buck up their ideas and build a better product? Well, yeah, but they can't go around hurling... Un, un, unbased threats or, 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 you know, insults at other people. It just sounds, it's just whiny. It's just pathetic. People do respond very strongly to insults and things nowadays because it is possible to respond strongly by creating a site 
by posting on Twitter. Um, there was actually a little storm on Twitter yesterday where um, there's a site called 24ways.org, which is like a, an advent calendar for like uh, web design people. And there was this rather interesting article about comparing like musical scales to the spacing of elements on a web page. And it was a bit sort of new agey, I would say. Um, but someone from Opera uh, posted on Twitter and said, what drugs were these like people smoking when they wrote this BS, um, <laughs> essentially? Um, and Pete, there was a real sort of like people were saying, oh, this woman should be fired for making these comments. They're not representing opera properly. And the thing is, if that had happened in real life, as like a real life comment, like what are these guys smoking? Like when they wrote this article, you would kind of almost brush it aside. Yeah. Um, whereas when it's on the internet and you're in a certain role, uh, so like a CEO of a, a company, as it was in this case, um, with the what's it the, the Zendesk, um, that just changes the mix, and people do seem to overreact to things nowadays because they have this platform to do it on. Well, I find that people um, people are pretty aggressive online, and I've I actually made a whole page justinvincent.com forward slash real r e a l. So when when I end up in some kind of altercation with someone on Twitter or on a forum, and they just say something just really disgusting that they only do because of the disinhibition effect of the internet. I just basically send them the link, say, go and check out justinvincent.com forward slash real. <laughs> and that's like <laughs> the last time I speak to them. Because uh, basically it just says, you're talking to a real person, you know? This is, yeah. this, this is like, this is the real world here. At some point you do have to cut people off and sort of have them as a, a persona non grata or whatever, where literally you just don't acknowledge the existence at that point. Um, there's no <laughs> point in, in flaming it. Um, but, you know, if you're very lucky, you will either have none or a very low number of these. If you have a very high number, then maybe you're doing something wrong. No, I don't have that high a number. That's good. <laughs> maybe like one a year or two a year. Yeah. <laughs> what if it was Freshdesk and Zendesk with both in on it and they're just kicking up some PR? That's, that could be an idea. Well, that, 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 would, be, um, that would be anti-competitive then, wouldn't it? Then they'd both be in big trouble. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that um, Zendesk will buy Freshdesk or vice versa? Just to take the site down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Google sucks. I'm just, I'm just putting a big post up. Googlesucks.org. Google is really, really horrible. If you uh, want to get rid of this site, please buy me now. So there's one article on this page that I didn't read, but I wish that I did because I really like the title, uh, The Rise of Developernomics, and I wondered if either of you guys had read that. Do you know what? I, I've had that bookmarked for about a week. Uh, it's six. It's six pages, annoyingly broken up. I hate it when they do this, and I just can't be. I can't get past the first page. I'm like, oh, I'll read it later. Oh, I'll read it later. I must be the one person that actually quite likes quite likes that. And I must admit, it's probably giving away my media kind of uh, hooks here. I don't do it myself, but I like things to be broken up into pieces because I find it very hard to get through. It's just a big wall of text. Um, I did actually read this, but it wasn't that memorable. Um, the only things I really remember from it is that we were just looking at the fact that how much in demand developers are and, you know, how developers can kind of cash in on that and how long term uh, computer programmers are essentially almost like replacing other parts of the economy um, and how that sort of gives them their value. But I don't remember any specific key insights from it, unfortunately. Um, it was just literally about that. You know, how do developers interact with the economy and how are we changing, uh, you know, how businesses run? Basically, we're awesome. I mean, everything is becoming computerized, like everything apart from just the absolutely hardcore manual labor stuff. Although I did read a quote the other day, because um, I actually run a, a Twitter account now that has like coding quotes on, uh, which is Code Wisdom, their shameless plug. 
Um, and there was a quote that uh, one bad programmer can create two new jobs a year, um, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, so that could be a way that we could lead the recovery, just get loads of bad coders out there coding on like bank systems and whatever, and they'll need to get more programmers in to uh, fix the problems. That's I don't think the banks need any more bad coders. I was going to say, <laughs> there's a lot of bad coders out there anyway, so I don't think that's going to be a problem. So we're, we're in it for uh, 60 minutes. Now, with Jason, we normally do an hour and a half, but this is a special case show. So uh, I'm wondering if you guys have anything else uh, that you'd like to bring up. I wanted to hear about Plugio stats. I'd do the, do the normal thing that Jason does and ask you about Plugio. So Plugio in November did $3,313, which is actually a slower curve than I was hoping for. I mean, I, I was really hoping for it. To, you know, <laughs> if you if you listen to shows from a year ago, I was, you know, thinking, oh, I'll be on $10,000 a month by this time. <laughs> but uh, but it's now, going up, right? It, it is going up. But um, I honestly think that when it gets redesigned and the work is re- re-released with Company 52, because you You'll know have I've a got, spike. A, got a partnership, I think, that's going to be pretty massive. I mean, they, they have a mailing list of uh, 350,000 people using a very similar product, um, but not exactly the same, um, just in the right space. And so I think that that blast out will be good, but also just the, the redesign. Like a lot of people um, have been sending me emails recently saying they've really been trying Plugio, but the, the UI, just because it's basically ugly... <laughs> <laughs> it's putting them off it, right? Um, but the, the the design that Mike Garvey from Company 52 has done for the new Plugio is just looking awesome. It's like a very Mac-like, very simple, beautiful product. So so what about you guys? Um, I haven't really had a catch-up with you guys. Uh, maybe let's start with uh, Peter. Um, like you, You've started monetizing all of your free stuff. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about what's been happening to you. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I can't remember when I was on last. It must have been almost a year ago now, so... Uh, yeah, quite a lot's happened in that time. I've been keeping up with the email newsletters. So I run, um, when I last came on the show, I think I had uh, Ruby Weekly and JavaScriptWeekly.com, um, which are both growing really well. But now I have HTML5 Weekly as well. And kind of almost a tongue-in-cheek experiment, I have Dart Weekly as well, which is uh, for Google's new Dart language, although it's almost not a weekly at this point because there's not enough actually going on in the <laughs> Google Dart world, unfortunately. Um but yeah, that's going really well. It's almost up to 40,000 subscribers sort of across all of them. Um, so it's been a real sort of boom this year. Um, and one of the good things from that is that I can, I, you know, once I have this audience, I can promote things to that audience that uh, would be, you know, interesting to them. And uh, that's not just sponsors, which I have had a few sponsors. It's not been the main part. Um, but then I've also uh, had my own courses I've been running this year called Ruby Reloaded, which is uh, basically like a, almost like a top-up refresher course for uh, rubyists and that's gone really well following the the sort of the amy hoy um model um not i think you've had you've had yeah you've had amy hoy on before um and she would have spoken about those so it's almost like a ruby version of what she's been doing are you charging um, the same prices now now her, her prices have gone up into the thousands uh oh right now that's her that's probably her 30 by what's it 30 by 500 yeah uh course yeah that's a really expensive course now i mean mean more at the level of the javascript course that she was doing um, oh, so right, I think yeah. they charge around sort of $500 for that. Um, and I was charging what, like four, seven, nine, something like that. Um, some people get a little discount, but, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and I've run what, yeah, four of those so far this year. So that's actually gone really well. And I've used the, uh, the newsletters to help promote those, but uh, I really should be getting into the JavaScript world. Cause actually the JavaScript list is like half of my you know numbers. 
Um, you know, there's almost 20,000 people in there, and yet I don't have any products or anything relating to JavaScript. Um, it was really just a stepping stone. Um, but I, you know, I've got lots of things coming along. I've been, I produced a screencast. I sold what 800 of those in the last two months um, about Ruby 1.9. So that was just an experiment. First time I'd ever done a screencast, and that's gone really well. Um, and are now, you, I, are you I, making a, are you making 100 of your revenue through your entrepreneurial efforts, or are you oh, still yeah. still doing consulting? I still do a little bit of consulting, but I kind of almost wish I didn't. Um, I don't need to. Uh, I guess I just do it because sometimes I need to force myself into actually not making all the decisions 100% all of the time, um, which is, you know, once you start doing things for yourself almost full time, you kind of want it your way or the highway. And uh, that can be sort of a dangerous trap sometimes, especially if you work solo like I do. Um, so I have kept on some sort of old consulting clients. Um, but another one, just, just as a sort of a last thing perhaps I wanted to pick up on, um, I mentioned it briefly before, I noticed on Twitter, and this is part of my whole thing, like recognize a pattern that works and then copy it and then try and put your own twist on it. So I noticed that quotes on Twitter do so well. Like if someone comes up with like a, a piffy quote, um, you know, perhaps it's something that someone famous said uh, and it relates to the audience. People put that on Twitter and it usually gets lots of retweets. And I thought, hang on, why don't I just create an account that's entirely quotes um, that I've kind of curated? And so I put together this account called Code Wisdom, so C-O-D-E, Wisdom. Um, and literally, I just started finding cool programming uh, or computer science-related quotes and um, I set it up so that, you know, it posts them on there. Um, and the amount of retweets is ridiculous. Like, you know, perhaps about a third of the posts get 100-plus retweets. Um, and it's blown up since, what, it's just about six weeks old now, and it has 6,168 followers. And I've done nothing other than literally mention it on my Twitter account um, and say, you know, check this out. I think I put it in, an, in the newsletter as well. I sort of said, have a look at this account. Um, but other than that, it's grown entirely by itself. So it's just taking that concept and then proving it in real life with something. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't make any money, but this will act as a good spring forward for a project I've got coming up soon. So well, you, you're the, you're kind of like the godfather of increasing your lock surface area. I mean, you've got all these projects that have just, just got lots of users and it's, it's just a question of monetizing them. <laughs> you know, exactly. I mean, that's a great yeah, position to be in. That's the thing that I'm not actually very good at. I'm not very good at the monetizing part. Um, I'm really good at the audience part. So actually I'd probably do better working for someone else um, and actually increasing their surface areas um, just because I'm sort of not so good at the, that monetizing part. But I'm starting to do it very, very gently, and you know it's working out really well. Just because I do have this very big, uh, you know, surface area, as you say. So I guess I'm kind of overcompensating by having a much bigger audience, and then even if I monetize it poorly, it works out reasonably okay. Well, nice problem to have. Yeah. So, Alex, um, <clears throat> what, I, I don't know how to <laughs> how to ask this because I know that I know that you you're not um, taking that entrepreneurial route in the same way. Or, well, certainly the last time we spoke. I mean, perhaps you could uh, let me know if you are. Yeah, it's funny, and it's it's quite daunting to follow Peter. Uh, I'm, Peter, with all due respect, I, I didn't quite know who you were, so I did actually Google you and check out your website, and I went pale when I saw all the things that you had done <laughs> and, and all the projects you're involved in. I was like, oh, my God. So I, I compare very badly to you, I think. Um, by the way, oh. you're doing awesome things. But, yeah, I, this last year, uh, I've been consulting like mad, uh, doing uh, other people's projects and uh, uh, really getting into Doctrine 2 and Symphony 2, which are PHP frameworks, which I I think are great. Um, and basically preparing myself to go out to LA 
next year. So you so you're very boots on the ground, right? You're like a, you're in the front line. Exactly, exactly. What, um, what's I'm Doctrine a, Two? I've never heard of that. Doctrine Two is uh, an ORM, a, a relational mapper for um, for PHP and databases, and it's uh, it's great. It's it's as with most frameworks, you, it's it's good if you find one that uses your kind of your a similar way that you think. And uh, Doctrine Two and Symphony Two uh, both suit me. They're, they're both built by similar people, the Sensio Labs guys. And um, uh, yeah, they, it just suits me very well. So Doctrine Two helps me uh, uh, auto-generate models and and uh, put all all my database classes in a, into a certain format, and it just works for me. Really, really love it. Is Yahoo still based on Symphony? I I don't know. It might be an old version of Symphony. Right, right. But Symphony Two is the new one. They've cleaned it up a lot. It works very differently. It's not quite a hundred percent. I think version two point one might be a bit more, bit, bit better. It needs a bit more documentation. Although although the website's lovely, um, but um, no, I still love using it. Um, but yeah, I'm starting to get a bit tired with the constant contracts and consulting route that I've been doing now for for so long. And I'm quite looking forward to going over to LA and uh, and getting a permanent position somewhere and actually staying in a company for longer than three months. So what are your thoughts? I mean, do you, do you have kind of ambitions to get stock options and, and that that would be a path to generating great riches or do you have some secret ambition to create a side project one day? Um, I'd like to, I don't mind working on other people's ideas if I enjoy them at all. Um, it doesn't have to come from me. I, I quite enjoy, I just enjoy the technical challenges of of getting something working really well. That that's really where I'm happy. Right. So um I'm very much uh yeah, I mean I'll I'll go over to a, a company and just sit there and try and make something work amazingly. Uh, and that gives me the the most amount of happiest uh, happiness as long as I'm earning a decent amount of money and um and I'm doing what I enjoy. I think there's nothing better in life. So I'm um, I'm a happy guy. That's good. That's that's very cool. That's the um that's like the shortcut to to becoming extremely rich because when they say that when you're extremely rich right then you just do what you want to do but yeah. it sounds like you're already doing what you want to do so i am doing what i want to do yeah so uh, i'm not about to start up a new company just so i can sell it you know after a few years once i've built up all these users i just want to i want engineering problems peter from your perspective is entrepreneurialism basically creating passive income or is are you interested in creating some valuable company thing that you could sell one day yeah, I think it's a little bit of both, actually. Earlier on, like when I was in my sort of early 20s, I would have thought, yes, like, you know, literally the goal is to make loads of money and off we go. Um, whereas now, you know, perhaps getting a little bit, little bit older, um, just turned 30, yeah, very, very wise old age of 30. Um, and now things are a lot more about how does it fit in with my life, um, which, you know, I'm sure most people who are getting older kind of have that feeling in their life. Um, so now it's not necessarily about us making as much money as possible, but it's about having as much kind of freedom to operate, um, as possible. Uh, you know, and that's not necessarily just going to come from money. And we've actually seen that happen with, uh, what's it? Derek Sivers of CD baby, you know, he sold CD baby for something like $30 million and then literally put it all in this big trust, um, that just pays him out a very small amount each year. Um, and that sort of thing works for him. So I would love to be in that situation where I can build up um you know a, a company or something that will produce you know a certain a, a, you know a good living each year but i don't have to have that big chunk of 
you know, giant money in the bank that would come from a massive sale. But if it came from a massive sale, I'm not against the idea. So I haven't got kind of this DHH kind of aversion to selling a company, um, you know, if it would give me that potential to get that frequent income. Uh, but it's definitely not a goal at this point um, or anymore. It's funny, I've been thinking about, well, I, I guess I've had this kind of background thought. All, what I'm working towards is being rich enough to retire, right? But now I'm in Ireland for a month and I'm really doing a lot less work than I normally do. And it's driving me insane. All I want to do is like stop this vacation, get back to LA, work on Plugio, work on any foo, and just do the projects that I want to do. So I'm thinking, well, if I actually do, <laughs> if I was ever to make enough money to retire, I just, I don't think I would. Absolutely. It's like sportsmen at the end of their careers. I mean, it's, it's so sad because they've been doing the thing they love all their lives and, and they can't anymore. And they, it just drives them nuts, usually because they've got tons of money and way too much spare time. So how is it in Ireland? Now that you're over in the UK, are you, are you wanting to uh, stay here in the beautiful rain and cold wind? What I, one thing I'd say, Alex, is that um, when I was in Ireland, when I was living here, I guess 15 years ago, I mean, it was the Celtic tiger. And everything seemed so optimistic. And everyone was just like, yeah, let's, you know, there's people driving around in great cars. And everyone just had a, an optimism. And this time, given the whole Euro mess and the whole financial crisis it you really feel the weight of that like yeah it's, it's, I'm, I'm amazed at at how kind of i don't know depressed it feels over here but um yeah it's 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 great to be back i mean it's great to be in ireland but i am it also makes me appreciate la and america like america when i first moved over everything just seemed so big and strangely big you know all the <laughs> roads were like eight <laughs> lanes big on two yeah. like 16 lane roads and I and just the thought, cars as well. The cars, yeah, the cars are huge. It just seems so weird, right, when you first moved over to America. But now coming back to Ireland and England, everything just seems so small. It's like a little <laughs> toy. <laughs> it's like, this, is, this isn't the real world, you know? These, this is like Toy Town. Yeah, it's just sort of like uh, having envy because uh, sort of in the early 2000s, it was something I was doing quite a lot. I was working with people in LA and so forth, and I did visit a few times and uh, just, you know, always wanted to try and sort of move there. But uh, just because of problems and, you know, because I'm poorly educated like you, um, I guess, um, you know, it wasn't easy for me to move there um, and do it all like, you know, the correct way. So uh, literally that kind of fell off the, um, you know, the plans. And then uh, I've sort of got married. I've had a kid. And, you know, I'm sort of now not in that position where I could easily move to a place like that, um, you know, even though it'd probably be easier for me to get the visa. So, uh, I think it might just be vacations uh, from here on out for me, um, unless we have a massive life uh, plan change in the next 10 years or so. Well, awesome. Well, so, you know, you're both welcome to uh, come and visit me anytime you want. I'll buy you a drink. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, you don't want to travel with kids as well. I mean, that's just the one thing that really scares me, having like a two-year-old on a plane for right. 10 hours. Um, so that's why I haven't been back for a couple of years. Uh, you know, that's quite scary to me. I just find that increases my stress levels through the roof. Increases my stress levels as well. Well, as a fellow passenger. Yeah, two-year-olds yeah. on a plane. <laughs> that's exactly it. I mean, that's what I worry about, sort of other people just being so, like, annoyed with it um, that, uh, yeah. So I need to teach them to behave first, I think. That's a very British attitude. Yeah. I would just say, I would just say, come on, son, roar your loudest, piss them all off. I don't give a crap. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a very polite person, even though yeah. I don't seem to act that way online. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's good. That's, that's very good, the English way. I'm just going to do a shout out. So we got a 10 texting, got a $10 donation 
from Tom Horn. Thank you very much. Uh, he says he's a longtime fan of the show and to keep up the good work. So that's a $10 shout out. Thanks so much for donating to Texting. If anyone else wants to donate, go to textinglive.com forward slash donate and send us all your money. And we're not sure what we'll use it for yet, but we will use it for something good. We've been meaning for years at this stage to do a full redesign of the site. But another thing we want to do is to have some glam shots with me and Jason. <laughs> so, Wait, some what? Glam shots. <laughs> oh, okay. Jason wants some headshots. Like he's, he thinks that our, our pictures are just crap. Um, so he wants to get a professional photographer to do it. But uh, yeah. And so, if anyone wants to donate to me, it's uh, alexgemmel.com. Okay, yeah, alexgemmel.com. <laughs> I want to see you do a texting like calendar girls type thing. Oh, really? Literally, like, you know, just like a, a cheeky kind of like nudie calendar. I reckon, you know, it could make a lot of money for the podcast. I'd, I'd pay you not to do that. <laughs> okay, and yeah, that, that's actually a very good point. If you, if you would like us not to do that, donate. <laughs> Textinglive.com forward slash donate. I think that's, that's been a good show. Yeah, have we done, have we done Jason Brown? We, I think so. I hope so. All right, that's all right. We're out. Well, you know, because you and Amy always have good chats. Actually, you know what? You and Amy is is, is basically my chit- my Twitter stream because I because <laughs> I basically have I've I've siphoned off about ten friends, you know, ten people who I just who I follow through one list. So I, I follow thousands of people, but I just in Plugio I just have like one list of like ten people. Uh-huh. I always see the stuff going backwards forwards between you and Amy. Yeah, we're all often having little rows as well. So she's all about being sick, isn't she? <laughs> yeah, but I've actually been in that situation. I mean, I must admit, I probably should have mentioned this on the on the cast just because it's such a big thing I've found out is that uh, I've actually, since May, all the way until a few weeks ago, I've been really ill um, with, like, digestive problems and so on. And I've actually discovered in the last few weeks I am lactose intolerant. I've got adult-onset lactose intolerance, cut out milk, cut out cheese, perfectly fine again. Interesting. Oh, that's interesting. Um, and it took me that long to figure out that it was, you know, when I eat a slice of pizza the next day, it would be a very bad day and, you know, all that type of thing. And I was eating chocolate most days, so that obviously wouldn't help. Yeah. Um, whereas now I've just cut all of that out, gone. Um, and I bet you're losing again. weight then as well. Not really. I, mean, I haven't noticed that yet. It hasn't been long enough. But, um, yeah, so it's just amazing change. And, you know, I was sort of getting ready to be sort of resigned to perhaps not going out very often and sort of, you know, always being on sort of the, the watch for it. But, uh yeah, it's amazing. So um, if people have that sort of digestive issue, uh, perhaps they should look at, you know, some of the things they eat and keep a diary and, uh, you know, see what it is. It does seem to happen to adults. I didn't realise this. So, mm. no, How funny, because in November I got hit with acute pancreatitis for officially no real reason. It was the most painful thing. I, I imagine it's somewhere near to childbirth. It was awful. <laughs> and I think a few women would argue with you. Well, I've had some uh, a woman say it was worse than childbirth, so uh, uh, it was just terrible and and very painful. And now, through doctor's advice, I've been told not to drink, so I'm officially off the booze. And I have lost weight; I dropped a ton of weight, wow. just a couple of stone. Well, mainly because I was on hospital on a drip, but um, but yeah, no booze now. That's just awful. I tell and you no- what, in Ireland, I can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't drink anyway, so uh, I, it, that wouldn't bother me. But uh, but yeah. not drinking to me is like not having pizza and chocolate for you. Yeah. Well, actually, I've got used. I'm I'm I've I've not had chocolate in a couple of weeks, and I actually don't miss it, which is really weird. Um, it's actually coming. It's things like um, 
I wouldn't eat these very often, like pizza and cheeseburgers. Like I would literally have perhaps one in a month, um, something like that. And so last night I was in a situation where I could have had a cheeseburger, and I was like, oh, I really miss having that kind of like treat. Whereas chocolate, I was having it every day. It was kind of like just a, a standard thing. Yeah. But cutting it out has been actually quite easy because I have that in my head. Eat chocolate, sick. Um, so that's easy to give up. Whereas it's the, the it's the treats I think that are uh, are going to be the difficult part. Like pizza. I mean, you can't join in with pizza. I mean, what's that about? 